Welcome to the Think Again podcast. I'm Denise St. Ivany. I'm joined today by Daniela Madara Beach, co-head of U.S. Multi-Sector Fixed Income at Macquarie Fixed Income. Daniela, welcome to the podcast. So great to have you on. Thanks, Denise. Always great to be here with you. Thank you. It feels like investors have a lot they might worry about right now at the start of the fourth quarter. We have inflation lingering, news about supply chain disruptions impacting growth, and comparisons popping up again to the 1970s, and economic stagflation. And we have bond yields rising. So are things that bad? Help us get some perspective on the environment as seen from the bond markets, if you will. Well, boy, Denise, when you put it that way, it sure does seem a little frightening. But as always, there's uh, there's some of the, the, the drama from the headlines, as we were talking about earlier, and some of the reality check uh, in terms of what's happening uh, in real terms. So let me just start uh, in, in backwards order for a moment and just remind everybody when we talk about bond yields rising, it ain't quite like we remember bond yields rising way back in the day. In practice, just as a, as a quick reality check, the 10-year treasury moved from about 1.3% to not quite 1.6%. So I know the headlines are a little dramatic out there, but uh, it, it's important to keep things in perspective. Uh, That's in a fact, good, good as we place con- to start. Give us that baseline. <laughs> That's right. And in fact, as we contemplate sort of where the scary things could be, uh, it it has actually been more interesting to watch equities uh, react to that more than anything else, as they've behaved in a little bit more of a bipolar fashion recently in weeks here. But, you know, uh, amusement aside here, there are there, there's some objective truth to the fact that we are living through a moment from an inflation perspective, from a growth perspective, that we haven't seen in a very long time. The comparison to the 70s are are distinctly exaggerated. With that said, we have to acknowledge that the level of inflation that we're seeing today is not something we've experienced in in a couple of decades. And when we look at things like CPI, for example, we're looking at 5% levels, that's a lot. And it's, it's been stickier. Uh, You know, even core PCE, something that the Fed likes to monitor, that has started to to, to rise quite a bit. Inflationary expectations as measured by things like the University of Michigan survey over the long run, that's approached 3%, which we hadn't seen in a very long time. And perhaps more importantly, and away from this, uh, you know, pure macroeconomic aggregates, the reality, the day-to-day experience um, certainly is pointing to a lot of both labor and supply chain disruptions. And there are a couple of different things, even we had discussed a few examples recently. But for example, you know, if, if anybody was ordering furniture these days, the delay times are reaching 10 months, a year. Uh, Denise, you had given an example the other day about uh, a facial cream, I believe, uh, that had to be uh, had to be uh, sent without labels because labels couldn't be printed on time. Um, I had recently come, my first trip, I have to admit, my first business trip from uh, since the start of the pandemic in Chicago. And I was talking to somebody who owns a significant trucking business in the Midwest. 
And some of the examples were remarkable that he was giving. For example, the availability of labor, the availability of truck drivers had been significantly hampered by the pandemic itself. People just chose to do other things or because of the breakage time that is occurring with, uh, with, with trucks, you can buy new ones, your old ones are breaking longer. That's inconvenient if you're a truck driver. Things that I wouldn't even think about but there, is, there have been departures. And what happens during this type, of, uh, this type of environment is that it forces businesses to raise some of the prices for, in order to retain labor. And you know, as we've had many other conversations as a team from a macro perspective, one of the things that has been helpful to us currently is to actually listen more and be very attuned to our fundamental analysts because they are in day-to-day -day conversation with uh, the, the companies running businesses. And what they have noticed is that uh, there is a general ability to uh, pass on higher costs to customers. All of these things are very important and real and more likely than not, as we reflect on the reality that the Delta virus has made the pandemic a little bit more wobbly and the recovery a bit more wobbly and certainly protracted, um, it's becoming obvious that so many choices, structural choices that we have made years ago, such as just-in-time delivery systems, such as um, so, so many people choosing to go to college instead of trade schools, that, that's a problem today too. All of those things are starting to come home to roost. Um, so this, is our, this, this has been the center of our conversation now with all of that sort of in place and acknowledged. We do need to remind everyone of, of sort of the um, metaphor we've been using for thinking about inflation which is that sailing metaphor, right? Yes, there's no doubt we're sailing into a storm right now and the cyclical storms are significant and the supply chain disruptions are significant, but the underlying currents, whether it's from demographics, whether it's from debt, whether it's from technology, all of those currents are substantially disinflationary. So it is ultimately this balancing act that's important to consider, which is why, precisely why, for the Fed going into year end and going into 2022, um, the biggest dilemma will be to say, can we stay put and not overreact to inflation? Because the alternative, which is stagflation, could be a very, very ugly uh, conundrum for the Fed to tackle. Hmm. Okay. Well, another boating metaphor is, you know, look <laughs> at the captain and don't get worried unless the captain gets worried. So you're the captain of the fixed income ship there. Um, uh, how is your, you know, and again, so maybe when I look at you, should I be worried? Right. So, so uh, how about as the captain of the ship there, are you making changes to the portfolios? How are you doing the overall positioning to, to, to react to what's happening in the markets? The first thing we're doing is to not react. <laughs> the first thing we are doing is to make sure we do our homework, we look at our evidence, we, get, we have a game plan before things happen, and we act in accordance to that plan. So, so reacting in bond markets or any markets tends to be sort of chasing things and, and, and doing things after the fact, which doesn't tend to work very, very well. 
And just to give you a couple of uh, different examples right now, if you were to just look at the headlines these days, right? Inflation is high and might be here for a long time. Or, uh, you know, interest rates might rise dramatically. I don't know what, you know, what headlines we read. The knee-jerk reaction might be to say, my God, run away from bonds all the way for shortened duration dramatically, or go buy all the tips you can. And here's the problem with that theory. It's twofold. The first one is uh, people assume that just because the Fed has told us, right, the Fed has first told us we're talking about talking about tapering, and the Fed talked about tapering, and the Fed, the Fed prepared us that at, at year end, at some point, they would actually announce tapering. So the knee-jerk reaction from a lot of folks has been, aha, higher interest rates around the corner. This is it. Um, rates will go higher, drastically higher. The evidence tells you something very different. We acknowledge that in the near term, you might have some bumps along the road. So we have hedged some of that risk incrementally being a little bit shorter duration, but we intend to actually add back duration as interest rates rise. You know why? It turns out that the evidence says when the Fed ends quantitative easing programs, because the markets anticipate moves, interest rates tend to go lower, not higher. And in fact, for interest rates to move dramatically higher, you would have to really move into high gear and for a brand new full-on tightening cycle. And we don't believe the Fed, who is very aware as, as an organism and as a political organism these days, um, of the fact that stagflation could be a real problem, and especially a problem when you think about equality and other issues, we believe the Fed is likely to be uh, uh, reactive rather than proactive. So in light of that, you see how nuanced and attenuating um, and more standing against the tide our thinking has been. Another example to give you along those lines, because it's been you know, a big topic of conversation, it's tips, right? Buy tips, inflows into tips, uh, ETFs have been enormous. We, on the other hand, have, have sold all our tips exposure uh, when inflationary expectations over the following 10 years moved into 2.5% territory. And here's what our thinking is. Think about tips as a form of insurance, right? You want to insure against inflation going higher. Well, insurance is only good if you don't overpay for it. But if the premium for this insurance has become out of control, well, that's not a good investment idea in the same way you wouldn't buy a rich bond. That is how we've looked at tips. And our concern, in fact, is that as the Fed steps away from buying treasuries, the relative proportion of how many tips they've been buying has been quite high in a very small market. And the pain point that investors are underappreciating is the fact that some of that that pain could be coming in the form in the, in the tips market, particularly at year end when liquidity is poor and this particular market tends to, to behave very, very badly during uh, liquidity crisis. So now you might say, all right, Daniela, you told us what you don't like doing. What on earth are you actually doing? And uh, this goes back to uh, some conversations we've had in the past about this idea of mutant capitalism, right? So what we've said for some time is that 
the amount of government intervention, monetary policy all these years in particular, but now fiscal policy as well, um, the fact that so many issues are central uh, to society, such, such as, as inequality, and that would force government to remain very involved, um, has changed really the market dynamic in a way that makes us think quite differently uh, about, about investing. So the market actually has become uh, sort of transitioned into, into fast forward. It's moving much faster than before. And the propensity of some sort of breakage or some, some kind of problem to manifest itself has increased in frequency. And our guess is that it's as simple as, you know, when you have a government that keeps using Band-Aids for problems, every time it uses a Band-Aid, it also seeds the next crisis. Oof. Okay, that sounds a little scary too. <laughs> it, is, it is Halloween season. Um, so that's all very interesting, you know, from a big picture perspective. So how does your team render this type of thinking and viewpoint going from macro ideas into action within the portfolios or specific investment positioning? Uh, maybe you have an example, something about, you know, capital reserves, or could you give us a little bit more insight there? Yes. So it's, it, it's a, it, the perfect segue. What, um, the way we, we think about investing is that discipline is at the center of it all. How you make decisions, being prepared for the eventuality of the next move in the market. So there are, there are a couple of different, um, different components here. First, as sort of staying with the, this idea of mutant capitalism and the fact that we've uh, been stuck in permanent fast forward, the markets are moving faster. One of the things that we've done is to think of market cycles as, as uh, offering the best opportunity to add value in the extremes, right? So if you think of, of credit spreads, for example, when they're the widest and everybody's running for the hills, that's the best time to buy if you have the, the wherewithal and if you have the confidence to stand against the tide. But in order to be able to do that, it requires something very simple, money available at the time. So how do you, how do you take care of that? And what we've done is to work on the idea of having a liquid capital reserve built during periods when spreads are very, very tight. So compensation for risk is very low, which is exactly what's happening in the market right now. And liquidity is overabundant. And lo and behold, this is exactly what's happening in the market right now. So we've increased. So what's this liquid capital reserve? Just to, just to refresh uh, everybody's memory, it's a combination of cash, treasury securities, and agency mortgage-backed securities. Why? Because where there, when there are any types of product problems in the markets, that's where the Fed tends to, to, to direct its attention. So they have very, a lot of depth and liquidity. So in this environment, uh, Denise, the biggest conversation we've had as a team is around this idea of being prepared for the fact that while we don't know exactly what risk might manifest in the same way that at the beginning of 2020, we couldn't anticipate a pandemic, we're aware of the fact that there are many areas where risks could come from. We just exited Afghanistan. That's creating an entirely new conversation around um, external policy. 
the entire globe is going back into this bipolar mode of, you know, China and Russia on the one hand and the U.S. and the other hand. You know, we were so busy with the pandemic that humans forgot to start fighting with each other and now they're back at it. Um, and, and that's just a minuscule amount of issues. Then you think about Fed policies in transition. That usually comes associated with all sorts of issues. Year-end is associated with liquidity bumps, just to look at the fourth quarter of 2018. So again, the overabundance of possible issues is significant. And for that reason, just being prepared, reducing some of the exposure in investment-grade credit, in high yield, in emerging markets debt, and transferring that into agency MBS and treasuries seemed valid to us to be prepared. Now, don't confuse that with running for the hills. We still have an obligation to generate return and yield for our clients, and we still maintain exposures to part of the market that, that can deliver that. So this discipline, this thinking about the markets is what informs what we do. As far as how we get to those um, those decisions, I think one of the things that I would, I would uh, want to mention in particular is this idea of being very committed to avoiding groupthink, to joining the consensus, consensus and to say, oh my God, interest rates will go higher, let's shorten duration. And the way we do that as a team is anchored in, in uh, a process that's very important to us called the Global Strategic Forum. We just finished the, uh, the forum recently, and, and the way it's uh, allowed us to arrive to the right conclusions is by having very um, focused, well-evidenced presentations for each component of the market. And a reflection of how important this idea of mutant capitalism is, um, is the fact that in our first uh, section of the discussion, the macro section, we had a dedicated discussion to the structural shifts in the markets globally. And in particular, the realization that there has been an increased decoupling between financial markets and the real economy. Did you realize that financial assets have now become nearly 10 times larger than the underlying economy? That means that that the fragility of the system is that much higher. So that's an important element to consider. We've equally spent time debating and analyzing the history of inflation, uh, inflation feedback loops, and whether there's any evidence we're not seeing any yet, for example. But there's been quite a bit of debate. And then the last component that we've, we've spent time on is to hear from each individual sector specialist teams, their own presentations from a bottom-up perspective, from how the macroeconomic trends apply to them, in order for us to make the best decision for, for the client portfolios. So some of the things that we've heard from our sector specialists, for example, is to just be respectful of the fact that uh, a lot of the bottom-up fundamental characteristics of corporations remain very strong. So hence our running for the hills not being appropriate metaphor. Um, the fact that the demand from our, from our trading staff the reminder that the demand for yield when you're dealing with this massive pool of financial assets and an aging population remains enormous. And here's an interesting fact, for example, along those lines. Uh, there are two places substantially where you can get a 2.5% uh, and above yield. 
And ironically, they mimic sort of the geopolitics of today. Those two places are the US and China. And when you think about the depth of the markets, the rule of law and so on, where do you think all of these massive amounts of assets come from? So that's where, as you go back and loop back into your initial uh, question around how scared we should be and whether or not fixed income has a place, we have to remember that, that fact. We have government at the center not being in a position to let things fall apart entirely, right? We have a massive amount of demand out there. And then we have the realities of the underlying trends in fixed income that uh, in, in, uh, in the economy that won't really be consistent with runaway inflation. So in that case, to us, it sounds steady as she goes, not running for the hills, not being in over-risk portfolios, not in the dramatically short portfolios, but having that exposure to the dynamic shift of liquid capital so that you are actually able to participate in this new era of mutant capitalism. Gotcha. Well, you're certainly not a one-person captain, then. It sounds like that there's a, uh, a vast resource of people that are um, contributing to the decisions that are made. I mean, obviously, the decision rests with, with someone, but at the time, you know, but in order to get to that point, you're relying on a very big team. No doubt about it. It's, it's 115 of us, of four hubs, three different continents. It gives us a, a good eye on anything that might be going on fixed income-wise. Well, I'm glad you mentioned the strategic forum because there's more from the Macquarie Fixed Income Team's recent strategic forum event that is available on macquarieim.com, including additional commentaries and audio. So with that, I just want to thank you so much for being with us today, Daniela. It's always wonderful having your perspectives, and I'm sure we could go on lots longer. So that's why we need you to come back again really soon. It's a pleasure, Denise, as always. Thank you. Bye-bye. This recording is intended for financial professionals and institutional investors only. This is not intended for use with the general public. The views expressed in this podcast represent those of the speaker and are subject to change. Nothing presented should be construed as a recommendation to purchase or sell any security or follow any investment technique or strategy and does not constitute advice, an advertisement, an invitation, a confirmation, an offer or a solicitation to engage in any investment activity or an offer of any banking or financial service. Throughout this presentation, various securities and companies are referenced. Examples given are for illustrative purposes only and were not chosen based on performance. This is not a recommendation to buy or sell any security. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal. All examples herein are for illustrative purposes only and there can be no assurance that any particular investment objectives will be realized or any investment strategy seeking to achieve such objective will be successful. Past performance is not a reliable indication of future performance. Before acting on any information, you should consider the appropriateness of it with regard to your particular objectives, financial situation and needs, and seek advice. No representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made as to the accuracy or completeness of the information, opinions, and conclusions presented. In preparing this recording, reliance has been placed without independent verification on the accuracy and the completeness of all information available from external sources. Macquarie Asset Management is the marketing name for the Asset Management Division of Macquarie Group. 
Investment products and advisory services are distributed and offered by and referred through affiliates, which include Delaware Distributors LP, a registered broker-dealer and member of the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority, and Macquarie Investment Management Business Trust, a Securities and Exchange Commission registered investment advisor. Investment advisory services are provided by a series of Macquarie Investment Management Business Trusts. Other than Macquarie Bank Limited, none of the entities noted in this podcast are authorized deposit-taking institutions for the purposes of the Banking Act of 1959 from the Commonwealth of Australia. The obligations of these entities do not represent deposits or other liabilities of Macquarie Bank Limited. Macquarie Bank Limited does not guarantee or otherwise provide assurance in respect of the obligations of these entities unless noted otherwise.